start this morning reading some brief excerpts out of a couple of psalms, two of my favorites actually. One is Psalm 34. Part of it says at verse 15, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. His ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. Psalm 37, similar theme. Verse 9, evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. You'll look carefully for his place, you won't find it. But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him because he sees his day coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and bent their bow to cast down the afflicted and the needy, to slay those who are upright in conduct. Their sword will enter their own heart and their bows will be broken." You know, as you read the Psalms, uh, we who live in the Christian era, the days or the age of grace, post-crucifixion, resurrection, we're not used to a lot of the language of the Old Testament, which does talk about judgment frequently. These two Psalms highlight this picture that's consistent throughout, especially the Old Testament, but certainly is brought up again in the New. In fact, the Bible closes with this same theme, that God will save or deliver the righteous, and he will judge the wicked. The Bible ends on that theme. We don't think about it a lot. And it's full in the Old Testament. You see it everywhere. And it's this theme of God delivering on one hand and judging on the other that is the theme of the book we're in this morning, the little book of Obadiah. You know, almost every time I say Obadiah, I think, oh, my darling, oh, my darling, oh, my darling, Clementine. I don't know what it is, the syllables or the sound or something. So that's one way to remember the name of this little book in the Old Testament. This theme of God judging and delivering, it's the key theme in Obadiah. Obadiah is the shortest book in the Old Testament. So if you've missed it, you know why. It's one page. It's like a few of our New Testament books. One page, 21 verses long. It's unusual because of its size. You know, the Old Testament has the heavyweight 66 books in Isaiah or 150 Psalms. Obadiah, one page little book. It's unusual because of its short size. It's also unusual because unlike most of the Old Testament, Obadiah is not concerned primarily with Israel, but with a nation state to their east and south with the nation of Edom. And Obadiah addresses most of what he has to say to Edom. And if you remember, It's interesting, we'll talk about this later too, the news. You know, when you read about Israel's troubles, not always, but most often, Israel's troubles come from their relatives. It comes literally from those who are related to them by blood. They have the same paternity. So Israel, if you think of your map and you've got the Sea of Galilee and the River Jordan and the Dead Sea, and this is all Israel on the Mediterranean side, Edom would be over on the east and to the south of Israel or the southern part of Judah, east and south, east side of the Jordan and south along the Dead Sea area. Edom and Israel, though, share the same parentage when you get back to Isaac. And the Edomites come primarily from Isaac's son Esau. And the Jews, of course, come from Isaac's son Jacob. 
they, same, they share the same lineage, the same parentage, if you will. So Esau was, by blood, actually Israel's relatives, lived there on the east and the south. <coughs> Sorry. Most commentators believe that this was written after Jerusalem, the southern tribe of Judah, was sacked by the Babylonians in 586. And you can see when it talks about some of the destruction that occurred, that seems to be the most likely. Is, uh, Judah and Jerusalem were sacked by others before this, but it seems based on the level of destruction, this was probably the time it was written. And Obadiah's name means the servant of the Lord. Because this is short, we'll actually read all of the book we're in this morning, and we'll, we'll stop a couple times along the way to make comments. But starting at verse 1, The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, we have heard a report from the Lord, and an envoy has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise and let us go against her for battle. God's first words to Edom are, I'm calling the nations to battle. This is not a good thing for them. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to earth? Though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be ruined, would they not steal only until they had enough? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings, that is, some remnants, some leftovers? Oh, how Esau will be ransacked and his hidden treasures searched out. All the men allied with you will send you forth to the border, and the men at peace with you will deceive you and overpower you. They who eat your bread will set an ambush for you. There is no understanding in him. We've got parenthetic comments here. That's one. You won't see it coming. Your destruction's going to come from your allies. You won't see it coming. God says there in verse 2, I'm going to make you small among the nations. You're going to be greatly despised. And then towards the end of this passage, he's going to bring that about through their allies. So God's going to judge Edom. He's going to make them small. And he says in verse 3, why? And this is the key, basically. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. And this follows, everything else follows from verse 3, that he judges or indicts this nation over is related to arrogance and pride. <clears throat> if you remember Middle Eastern geography, uh, because of Edom's location, they live in a rocky, hilly area. They controlled some trade routes, so they had great wealth. They taxed anybody that came through. But also, their geography was in these rocky, craggy hills, which meant they were easy areas to defend. And I'll bet almost everyone here has seen pictures of one of their key cities. I don't remember its ancient name, but we call it Petra today. In fact, in movies, in photo albums, anything related to Jordan, you'll see pictures of the chasm that comes up through the desert and it comes to this red rock facade in which literally their city was carved into and out of the cliffs and the rocks. So to get into their area, they had a very defensible position because you couldn't get an army through at a time. They weren't like a walled city you could surround. They were reached by this chasm. So they felt very proud. They felt very safe because of their geography. They thought, kind of like Babylon, if you remember, you know, Babylon 
this huge city sitting behind these huge walls thought they were invincible. They were very proud of their walls. And of course, Babylon was sacked and destroyed, even though it had these walls that you couldn't get over. You couldn't get around, but you could get under. And in the end, God says, even though you should build up to the heavens, no matter how high your cliffs are, I'm still going to bring you down. He's going to take this proud nation and he's going to humble them. They who think so highly of themselves will be despised by others. And he says this judgment will be so thorough that it would be like someone going through a vineyard and there wouldn't be a grape left behind. And you know when you harvest, even today with our good methods of harvest, something's always left on the ground afterward. But he said, no, his judgment of Edom would be so thorough there would be nothing left behind. Or it would be like... The Grinch who stole Christmas, you know, when he comes down to the town, he takes everything. There's nothing left. That's what the destruction of Edom would be like. This arrogance and pride, this is a, it's a big deal uh, for them, and it's a big deal for us. You know, this is one of the sins that Scripture, that God talks about quite a bit. And pride, arrogance is destructive, at least for two reasons. There may be others, but at least these two. Uh, God hates it. And God says that he opposes the proud. He'll give grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. And the other thing about pride is this. When we are proud, and that is when we estimate ourselves too highly, either what we are, what we have, what we've accomplished, we actually lose track of reality. Someone who's proud and arrogant, they, they actually, there's a sense in which they're insane. They've lost hold of reality. You remember we've talked about this in the past. Humility does not mean thinking less of ourselves. It simply means having an accurate understanding of who we are and what we have. So by its very nature, humility is very rational. It's connected to reality, but pride isn't. When we get proud... We leave reality behind because we falsely believe we have powers we don't have. Or we can accomplish things that, that really, left to our own devices, we can't. Paul talks about this in the New Testament when he says something like this. He says, what do you have that you weren't given? If, you want, if you're tempted to be proud, Paul says, what do you have that you weren't given? So think about it like this. If you're good looking, if you're considered physically attractive, did you produce that? Or did you get that? Was it given to you? It's given. If you're very smart, where did you produce your own intellect? No, you were given that too. If you have the skills or the tenacity, the character traits, etc., that enable you to be successful in one way or another, <clears throat> did you produce those? No, you didn't do that either. We are called to be faithful with what we're given. But Paul says... We need to recognize humbly, rationally, realistically, that the things we have were given to us. So when we get proud, we think too highly of ourselves. We, we commit in our own mind things to ourselves that simply are not true. Our power, our prestige, our ability to carry off one thing or another. It's a flight, a fancy. It's not real. God hates pride. And pride is destructive inherently because it, in it we leave reality. God speaks about pride a bunch in the scriptures, and I'm just going to quote a few verses primarily out of Proverbs here that give his assessment of this sin that Edom is guilty of in spades. Proverbs 8, 13, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. And as you know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, to hate pride and arrogance and the evil way. To be biblically wise is to hate pride for ourselves. 1525, the Lord, you remember what he just said to Edom, though you build high, I will tear you down. Proverbs 1525, the Lord will tear down the house of the proud, but he will establish the boundary of the widow. And think of this, the widow in Israel's day, these are defenseless people with no power. God says, you think you have power? I'll tear you down. But to the defenseless one who trusts in me, they'll have my strength. They'll actually be built up. 1618, Probably the best known, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Pride comes before the fall. You know, if you see someone who's proud in heart, it's not a question of if they fall, but when. Biblically, it's a, it's a truism, it's a principle that because I lose track of reality in my pride, and by the way, I would say that this has got to be one of the key sins that's led to the a culture of corruption in corporate America, it's pride. These CEOs and the accountants in these companies that are making millions and millions of dollars think that somehow now they've left the rest of humanity behind and they can do things and say things and get away with things that mere mortals like you and I can't. It's not a question of if they fall, it's only when and how. In Daniel 5.20 if you remember, King Nebuchadnezzar was the mightiest man on earth in his day. He controlled the nation of Babylon. It was the world empire of the day. And if you remember, God had warned Nebuchadnezzar, Hey, buddy, I've given you this power. I've built this kingdom. But Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 5.20, it says this, When his heart was lifted up and his spirit became proud, he behaved arrogantly. He was deposed from his royal throne. His glory was taken away from him. Actually, there was mercy in this because, of course, though God takes his rational mind from him and humbles him, he actually restores him. Edom won't be restored. Nebuchadnezzar, in his case, God actually restores him, but he abases the proud. God is opposed to the proud. And if you remember this too, when you and I get caught up in the sin of pride, thinking too highly of ourselves, as Edom did, you're actually following not God, you're following Satan's sin. Because if you remember, it was the same thought that was the corruption of Satan, this glorious creature, created being, assumed to himself things that weren't his to assume, but wanted to be like God. Pride was the thing that caused Satan's fall. Edom is following that same sin. Going on at verse 8, don't rejoice when God judges his own. Obadiah continues, Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy wise men from Edom? and understanding from the mountain of Esau. Then your mighty men will be dismayed, O Tamon, one of their key cities, so that everyone may be cut off from the mountain of Esau by slaughter. Because of violence to your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame, and you will be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you too were as one of them. Do not gloat over your brother's day, the day of his misfortune, and do not rejoice over the sons of Judah in the day of their destruction. Yes, do not boast in the day of their distress. Don't enter the gate of my people in the day of their disaster. Yes, don't gloat over their calamity in the day of their disaster, and don't loot their wealth 
in the day of their disaster. Don't stand at the fork of the road to cut down their fugitives and do not imprison their survivors in the day of their distress. Verse 10 again says, Because of violence to your brother Jacob, you'll be covered with shame and you'll be cut off forever. In their pride, Edom looked at the destruction that had occurred on Jerusalem and Judah, thought they were better than their brother, their relatives of the Jews, and so when God was judging his people, his covenant people, Esau thought, Edom, they could jump on top and kick him while he was down, so to speak. It is important to remember, God was judging Israel, the southern portion, the kingdom of Judah, the southern part of the nation, He was judging them when the Babylonians sacked the city. And so it's as if Edom thought, hey, their God's forsaken them, they're down, and so I can pile on too. But it was pride that gave them that same thought too. They thought they were better than God's chosen people. They thought they were better. And it says, some of the things they did, and it's it's clear here, God says to your brother's day, He's reminding them, these are actually people you're related to. You claim the same father when you go back to Isaac. And in the day when they were being shown no mercy by the Babylonians, you should have, as their relative, you should have shown compassion. But instead, you piled on, you stole the wealth of Jerusalem with the Babylonians. And maybe worst of all, when the refugees, when those who escaped the destruction or the slaughter of Jerusalem were trying to escape through Edom, The Edomites were cutting them down. Even the refugees they weren't providing safety or haven to, they were killing them, they were slaughtering them, just as the Babylonians had within the city of Jerusalem. It's important to remember, even when God judges his own people, though, that he does so with mercy. And if you look through the Old Testament especially, you'll see that when God judges Israel, there's always a remnant. God never destroys them utterly. He always brings them back. He always restores them. So that his judgment is always mixed with mercy or loving kindness or compassion. And that's his indictment on Edom here. He says, your brother was in trouble. In your pride, you thought you were better than them and you piled on and you inflicted more damage and more destruction that wasn't part of God's will. You should have known better. They were your relatives and you should have helped them and you didn't. Listen to this verse out of 109. 109 is messianic. It's the same thought, though. And this, these verses, these thoughts are applied to Judas' betrayal of Jesus. And it's out of Psalm 109 that Peter quotes in Acts about needing to replace the unfaithful, unmerciful, uncompassionate apostle. 109 verse 15, Let them be, that is the unfaithful, before the Lord continually, that he may cut off their memory from the earth because he did not remember to show loving kindness, but persecuted the afflicted and the needy man and the despondent in heart to put them to death. It's exactly the same thought. God looked at the judgment he brought on his people to correct them, sending them to Babylon in captivity. And he said, you should not have piled on. You, who were their relatives, should have shown mercy, and you didn't. Just like Judas with Jesus, his betrayal, it's the same thought here. I find this interesting that today, and remember the picture, Israel, the Jews, God's covenant people, are being judged by God. And while under judgment, their neighbors, their relatives, are piling on to abuse and hurt them. They hate them and they're piling it on. 
In Israel today, you know, if you read the news, they're in a war again in Lebanon with Hezbollah. And it, you know that there's, there's exceptions, individual exceptions, but you know that the Muslim groups around Israel want nothing more than to rid the earth of Israel as a nation and kill Jews. And they are raised, and I'm serious, from the cradle to hate Jews. And in Sunday school, coming up in a month or two, we'll be looking at a, a video, a DVD, by a Muslim Arab who became a Christian, and he'll just tell you he was a terrorist, what, what his upbringing was like. These folks are brought up to hate Israel. And if you think of it, most of these people are descended from Edomites, Ishmaelites, Ammonites, Moabites, that means they're all relatives of the Jews. They all go back to the same parentage, the same lineage. But even today, the nations around Israel want to destroy that nation. And this is the thing. I remember as a young Christian reading Obadiah, and I didn't get lots of other things, but I understood this. Don't mess with the people God's chosen. If you kick Israel when they're down, it's going to come back on you. And in fact, God tells Edom, what you've done is going to be done to you. God is in covenant with Israel. Romans 11, Paul says that you and I live in what he calls the times of the Gentiles. It's the church age. And so from Pentecost on, God has said, he's calling out people like us, that is, most of us are not Jewish. We're Gentiles, we're non-Jews. And Paul says in this day, and John in Revelation says, God's calling out people from every tribe, tongue, nation, kindred, all family groups around the globe. God's calling them out into his body, the church. It's not that no Jewish people get saved today, but that's kind of the exception. The nation is not saved today. God's not dealing with the nation of Israel. But Romans 11 makes it clear that the times of the Gentiles will end. And God will not be dealing with the church anymore. He'll be dealing with the nation of Israel again. And Paul says in Romans 11, and so all Israel will be saved. One of the minor prophets we'll look at not too long from now in Zechariah, it says that the second coming is Jesus coming back to the earth, to the Mount of Olives, to save Israel from the nations of the world that have come up against them. So this is not over. And it's just as if I'm convinced it's the same dynamics that Edom had with Israel in Obadiah's day. It's the same thing going on today. The nations around Jerusalem and Israel, and Israel is in this limited sense still under judgment. See, they're not... They're not, in that, uh, they're not enjoying the covenant relationship with God because he's put that on hold. He's calling the church. That's going to end. And then he's going to put Israel as a nation back on the front burner. And the nations that are attempting to destroy the people, kicking Israel when they're down, God's going to have something to say to them when he comes back and when he reinstitutes that covenant with Israel. All Israel will be saved. So Edom was kicking their relative when they were down in their pride and vanity, thinking they were better than those people God had said, I'm in special relationship with. In Obadiah's day, and just think about this for a minute, the northern nation, Israel, was taken in 722, scattered throughout the Assyrian Empire. The southern nation is destroyed, the temple's gone, the city's gone, the capital, and there's nobody but remnants of Jews left in Judah in the south. So Obadiah's writing this, And when he does, it looks like there's absolutely no hope and no future for Israel. They're dispossessed, they're captives in a foreign land, and they're scattered throughout the nation. It doesn't look good. But Obadiah says in the midst of this, he says, by the way, God's going to turn the tables, and Israel's future will be glorious. 
and I'm going to save them. And when Obadiah writes, what's Edom's position? They're high and lifted up. They're in their prime. They're wealthy. They feel that they've got great wisdom. They've got great protection. They're good to go. But God says, no, your future isn't glorious. I'm just going to cut you off. You won't be a nation anymore. Back at verse 15, the day of the Lord. You remember the day of the Lord is a key theological term. It means it can actually refer to a number of things, but primarily a day of both future judgment and future deliverance. For the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. Because just as you drank on my holy mountain, that is, you came into Israel and took their abundance, all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and swallow and become as if they had never existed. They're going to consume Edom, and it will be as if nothing was ever there. But on Mount Zion there will be those who escape, and it will be holy. And the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. That is, Israel will regain their own possessions. Israel, scattered, will be back in the land, in their own land. Then the house of Jacob will be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, but the house of Esau will be stubble, and they will set them on fire and consume them, so that there will be no survivor of the house of Esau. For the Lord has spoken. Then those of the Negev, or the south, will possess the mountain of Esau. Those of the Shephelah, the Philistine plain. Remember, Israel could never kick the Philistines off of the plain, the Mediterranean coast. God says in the future, Israel will possess the Philistine plain. Also possess the territory of Ephraim and the territory of Samaria. Remember, when they go in captivity here, it's only Judah in the south. But God says Samaria and Ephraim, the northern Israeli part of the divided kingdom, will be possessed again as well. Benjamin will possess Gilead. Benjamin was this tiny little tribe that was surrounded by the big tribe of Judah. Tiny Benjamin is going to possess the fertile plains on the north side of Edom. The exiles of this host of the sons of Israel who are among the Canaanites as far as Zarephath up on the coast near Sidon and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad, they think this is up in Asia Minor, will possess the cities of the south. The deliverers will ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Israel is down. Make no mistake. God was disciplining them. He was judging. It was terrible. Read, read it in Jeremiah. God says, no, it doesn't matter who prays for you. I'm going to judge you now. Things have gone so far, won't have any more. They were judged. It was terrible. But he says, your future is glorious. And those who at the time felt exalted and proud and lifted up, God says, and yours isn't. Even though at the time it looked like everything's rosy, God says, nope, in your pride you've opposed my chosen people. I'm going to close with a story, sort of a story. Um, in more recent history, uh, going back to World War I or so, we saw the end of a dynasty that had lasted over 700 years. Uh, the Habsburg. How many here have heard of the Habsburg dynasty? This is great. Sometimes we say Habsburg. But if I said the Austro-Hungarian Empire, you might remember that in history. And if you've read European history, that might ring a bell. The Austro-Hungarian Empire. Uh, th this was an impressive empire. They started around 1200. And this family of kings 
ruled for over 700 years. Same family. All their direct descendants ruled over 700 years, right up to the end of World War I. And they were the first, their line produced the first Holy Roman Emperor. And if you look at old maps of Europe, you'll see that the Austro-Hungarian Empire ruled the, a huge chunk, all of Central Europe, and depending on the time period, most of Northern Europe, good parts of Southern Europe, all of Eastern Europe, and good parts of Southeastern Europe. Huge empire. Almost more kings, queens, dukes, duchesses than you can count. It's impressive. It was huge. They ruled the world, sort of. It was huge. Listen to this, too. Part of their crest, they're not sure when this was added, but this will tell you what the Austro-Hungarian Habsburg Empire thought of themselves. They took the Latin letters, uh, vowel letters, A-E-I-O-U, to stand for Austria est imperare orbi universo. Austria is destined to rule the world. Or Austria erit in orbe ultima. Austria will be in existence until the end of the world. You can see they, they thought highly of themselves. This is shortened down to Austrike uber alles, Austria over all. This is the Austria, Austrian-Hungarian Empire, the Habsburg dynasty. This was it, more than 700 years, proud line, proud kingdom. These guys ruled the world. In World War one, or actually before World War I, you remember what started the war? I mean, ostensibly, the shot heard round the world. In Sarajevo, it's funny how things come back. Bosnia, Herzegovina, you know, the Balkan, we, we talk about, we, we're still there in the UN, we're still there today. That was the, the site that started World War I, almost 100 years ago. We're back there today, same thing for the same reasons. The Archduke uh, Ferdinand, Franz Ferdinand, he was the heir to the Habsburg dynasty. He wasn't ruling at the time, but he was the heir. And he was in Sarajevo in 1914, and he was assassinated. And because of the treaties that Austro-Hungary had with Germany, they declared war on Bosnia-Serbia. And then those alliances lined up the German kind of northern, central, southern Europe against western Europe. That's World War I. And it came because of the assassination and the treaties that were in line. During World War I and before, the last reigning monarch of this empire was King Franz Joseph. And he ruled from 1848, his dad abdicated to let him reign, 1848 until his death in 1916. So he reigned a long time. And when he died of natural causes in 1916, just imagine this, World War I is blazing. You're in the midst. And kind of the question is, the duke dies, excuse me, the king dies, what becomes of his empire? What about the Habsburg dynasty? What's going to happen to it? It was still up in the balance and we didn't know. But as his mortal house of clay turns to dust and he dies, his empire was doing the same thing. And of course, if you say today, where's the Habsburg dynasty? Doesn't exist. There is a nation of Austria, obviously. After World War I, that dynasty that had lasted over 700 years got carved up into the nation states of Europe you have today. Austria, Hungary, uh, Serbia in the southeast, Switzerland, etc. That all got carved up. There is no Habsburg dynasty today. But listen to this. This is from Oz Guinness's book, The Call, Listen to this from the funeral of this last great king 
of this lasting dynasty. The funeral procession goes to the Capuchin Monastery in Vienna to bury him because that's where the family crypts are. And so when the funeral procession gets to the monastery, the herald, everybody stops, the herald goes forward and he bangs on the door to go bury King Franz. Who are you who knocks? asks the abbot from inside. I am Franz Joseph, emperor of Austria, king of Hungary, the herald replied. I don't know you. Tell me again who you are. I am Franz Joseph, Emperor of Austria, King of Hungary, Bohemia, Galicia, Lodomeria, and Dalmatia, Grand Duke of Transylvania, Margrave of Moravis, Duke of Styria and Corinthia. We still don't know you. Who are you? The herald knelt down and said, I am Franz Joseph, a poor sinner, humbly begging for God's mercy. You may enter in. And the gates were opened. I love this picture because here, this was the last great king of this lasting dynasty. And his dynasty is going down and he doesn't know it. But he can still come before God and say, I'm not a king. I'm not royalty. I humbly acknowledge I'm a poor sinner in need of your mercy. And God says, come on in. This little book of Obadiah has this huge lesson about pride. Pride, arrogance was the sin of Edom. And pride and arrogance led to them kicking their brother when he was down. God says again through Obadiah, I'm opposed to the proud. You build high, I'll tear you down. You humbly approach me and I'll take you in. And this is the message of the gospel. None of us come and stand before God on our own merit. We come in the righteousness Christ provides. And that means that we go before God and say, I'm guilty. Humility on our part of sinner says, I'm guilty. I don't measure up. I'm not what I should be. I don't do what I should do. I do the things I shouldn't do. I'm guilty. But Lord, I plead your mercy. I plead the righteousness of Christ. That's appropriate humility. And God raises us up in the righteousness he provides. We don't want to be like Edom. If you notice, it says God cuts them off. They will have no remnant. And of course, you know, there's no Edomite kingdom. And there hasn't been. They were cut off. They were judged because of pride. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you will give us real rationality, real wisdom to rightly perceive who we are and who we are not, what we are and what we are not, Lord, what we have and what we do not have. And Father, I pray in that rational humility and that soundness of mind that you would make us in your Son, Jesus Christ, all that you want us to be. And Lord, the truth is we come to you as sinners in need of mercy and grace and your righteousness, but we are raised up by your doing called sons and daughters of the Most High, those who will rule and reign with your Son forever and ever. And Lord, I pray that that high call is just a great reminder to us of your glory and your grace that you raise us up who had no claim on you. Lord, only judgment. You've made us your sons and daughters and you've given us a posterity and glory that will last forever. Thanks for that, Lord. Help us to occupy the place of the humble and not the proud. 
Father, thanks that all your judgment has been meted out and met in your Son on the cross and that we get your glory and your grace because of Christ. In his name, amen.